What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. It's nice. It's nice to be here with you. It's been a little while. We're gonna be back to weekly soon enough. I, I'm, I'm finishing up a writing project. Then we're gonna be back to weekly. Got a fun episode. Uh, in the second half, I talked to my good pal Mike Ford. He just launched a podcast, Film Foria, and we're all stuck indoors doing nothing but delving in through movies. So I figured, why not talk to someone who's not really an expert? Why not just? Why not get my friend Mike Ford's opinion? on what movies we should be watching. So that's in the second half. But before we do that, you know, we're both here. Why don't we hang out a little bit? Why don't we uh, Why don't we catch up? And you know, before I whine, how are you doing? It, it's been a while. I, I feel like every time you come to the podcast, I just talk about me. Why don't Why don't you have a moment? Why don't you tell me how your day's going? Here, I'll give you. I'll give you responses. And so, if uh, you're feeling like no one's listening to you, you can just pay back these responses. Like you say something sad, and then here's my best response to something sad. Like, uh, uh, oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry that that happened to you. That sound genuine? Maybe I could do a second take on that. Or you say, "Hey, I did this, and I'm really proud of it." I'll go, "Dude, that's fucking awesome. You're, you're doing so good. Just get out there and keep doing more of what you're doing. You're a fucking killer, dude. You're, you're you're killing it. Everyone else is in quarantine. They're having a shit time, but not you. You're fucking plugging away. You're getting things done. Good for you, bro. Uh, all right. So I don't know. Maybe that will help you get through these times. Um, listen, it's rotten to complain. You know, so many of us have had our businesses plucked away from us because of some, you know, threat that's not real and the government just shut down people's lives. They're trying to keep people quarantined in their house, leaving their houses, but wearing masks. Maybe you know someone who's actually gotten sick. Maybe you know someone who has fallen to this epic plague amongst uh, uh, upon humanity of this COVID-19 virus. And what right do people like me to have to complain about the little the little things they're getting to them, but I'm here to tell you I'm hungry. I, I fuck home cooking. I miss bodega sandwiches. I feel like I am both uh getting fatter and hungry at the same time. It's like every meal I eat is just not quite. I don't have good bread for sandwiches. I'm just using like Fryhoffers, just straight whole wheat bread, and it's okay. But th- there's no dessert afterwards. There's no meatball subs. There's no epic chicken sandwiches. I mean, don't get it wrong. My mom's doing her best. She's she's putting meals together. It's not like we're not eating here, but it's like, I that, that's that's all. I'm, I just want to go out and eat a big ass fucking hoagie sandwich with a big cookie for dessert, and then lie down on my bed and feel bad about myself. That's all I want to do. Cause now I'm I'm just feeling bad without being full, and that that's not that's not fun. There's no upside there. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's my big gripe. And there's also, I, I'll just say for me, there's something a little bit weird. Not that I really, my parents are really just staying in the house, um, which at this point it's insane, but I also, I'm living in their house. I'm eating their food. So I respect it. I get, I get that they don't want to be uncomfortable and afraid of a fictional virus within their own home. So it's not for me to go out, live my life and mingle with people. So, you know, I go for a little strolls, this and that, but like, I haven't even been going to stores. I just want a good sandwich. That's it. All right. Well, I complained enough. I have uh, discovered a couple things I'd like to share. Um, for one, you know, I've never really been a dude who's eating tacos. That's, that's never been my, I like a soft taco. I like a soft taco. Um, but when it comes to a hard shell taco, it, it was just never my thing. My my memory of hard shell tacos are just those Ortega tacos and that it was kind of a bit like Captain Crunch where it would fuck up the roof of your mouth or they weren't very practical. You would take one bite and this whole thing would crumble. But let me tell you, I have much better fat fuckery skills than I did as a kid where now 
You know, I think it's from uh, when I used to work at LOL. The microphone was already bro- always broken, and you had to use your like fingers to kind of hold the bottom cord into the bottom of the mic, and you had to really grip it. Otherwise, you were just you know not talking into a working mic. But I got that thing down to a science, and let me tell you now, I kind of like eating a taco because it's the one sa- sandwich. I know it's not really a sandwich. We don't have to debate the merits of sandwiches and not sandwiches, but you kind of bite into it. It's like a, a house of cards. It's like Jenga. The thing just starts falling apart on you. It's a race against the clock. It's like Indiana Jones. Does he get out of the room before it crumbles? You know, the the floor falls in or whatever. So I, I kind of like the taco because it's a race against the clock of can you eat it before the thing crumbles into nothing. And then you end up eating more. Now, with that being said, like I don't have the best access to sandwiches right now. Do I prefer a hard taco to a soft taco? Are either of those things better than just a big old platter of tortilla chips, chips with like ground beef on top of it? Listen, I can't evaluate the ins and outs of everything. So I'm just telling you that as a person uh, with desperate times comes for desperate measures, I'm seeing a little bit more value into the hard taco. I used to be short the lo- the, the hard taco. Now, I wouldn't say I'm uh, necessarily long, but, you know, I'm not as bearish. Um, Here's another thing. You know, I'm just kind of mixing it up. I've been uh, jerking off with my left hand. And by the time quarantine's over, I'm going to be ambidextrous, dude. I'm going to be signing papers with my left hand. There's going to be nothing I can't do with my left hand that I can't do with my right hand. Um, Oh, also, here's a fun little quarantine discovery. You know, sometimes you get nervous about what's going to go wrong in your life. And I'm here to tell you this. No matter how bad your life gets... You can always go back to your parents' house and be a fat alcoholic. That never isn't on the table. And I know some of you who might not be quarantined at home, you might have memories of living in your house like in high school when, you know, your parents cared about you. But as adults, they're fat alcoholics too. They've given up. Everyone's given up. They've already seen it through to the end that you didn't become what you were supposed to be. So no one's going to give you shit. You can drink beers in the middle of the fucking day. No one's saying anything. So no matter how bad, like maybe you're trying to pull through rent, you're trying to barely scrape it and keep it together to get through this quarantine thing. I promise you, unless you have really bad parents and, you know, they don't have a house that you could live in, in which case, like, you know, you shouldn't listen to this thing. You should stay the course. You should keep it together. But for most of you out there who might be really afraid or maybe you get laid a lot, in which case going back to your parents' house is really rotten. Like that was one of the main reasons I left here. I don't know that that quite worked out for me. I'm just letting you know, you know, you can always go back home and uh, drink. Uh, and then also I've been, uh, I've been trying to plug away on the dating apps, which for about four days is the most exciting thing ever. You're just like, I can't believe there's all this pussy out here. It feels like you're at an all-you-can-eat buffet of just vagina, and there's vaginas, and you get to and, and you get to be selective. I don't want this vagina, I don't want that vagina, this one, and then you start making these conversations with people, and then the conversations don't really go anywhere. They do, but no one's really going to send you nudes, so you just kind of get bored of the whole thing. But I got one observation for any of you that are on the dating apps. Where are the friends of the people in the pictures? Every profile I look at, or not every profile, but you look at some of these profiles and like the friend, you just like, you you get excited. You're like, man, I could see myself marrying that chick, but then it's always the friend. It's like every friend and every profile is perfect, but those are never the people in the actual profile. Everyone who's left still on the dating market, like, you know, has half an eyeball or would, you know, just mean things to say in their profile about what they think in men or just claims of that they're not looking for for dick and that they want a full-fledged relationship with those friends. They just look slutty. It's not even slutty. They more look wholesome. All right. I think you get what I'm getting at. That's enough of all that bullshit. Oh, 
I got one more observation. Then we'll get into the news. And then we'll talk to my friend Mike Ford from the Film Foria podcast and uh, all of his uh, nice little things that he's got to say about movies. And I talked about movies too. And I'm sure you guys like movies. I think we can all agree that movies are pretty cool. Um, I've noticed I got this really... I like... Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I like a, I like a soft bed. You know, I like... like uh, I used to have a shitty mattress going up, so I'm kind of used to uh, like a soft bed that really kind of curves in but then you, you grow a little older and maybe you realize you need something a little bit firmer you're gonna have you know shitty back or other things that might hurt and whatnot anyways i got a pretty shitty bed in my parents house it really kind of got that real slumpy you know u-shaped curve thing going on but i've noticed that i'm dreaming like every night when i was in new york city i almost never dreamt and if i did dream it was just nightmare about cockroaches and sometimes I'd have nightmares with giant cockroaches, like cockroaches the size of uh, of like lobsters, but they were just cockroaches. Or I once even had a nightmare of a cockroach was coming down from the roof, and like I woke up. You know, I, I'm just telling you, New York City. I get nightmares. They're almost always just about, or like rooms are just covered in dead cockroaches. I don't know. Cockroaches weird me out. I haven't even seen one in my apartment for a while. But if I got a nightmare, they just. They, I, I guess that is where my brain goes. Living out in the suburbs, I have nightmares, but these are like three act stories where, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't want to quite divulge my personal nightmares, but they are way more fascinating. I mean, these are like grade A, you know, Oscar award winning three act structure nightmares where you're about to die at the end and then you wake up in a panic and you realize, hey, that thing was just a dream. So if I'm going to compare New York City to suburb living, I'll say that the, uh, the nightmares here are much, much, much more glorified. All right, so let's get into a little bit of the news. That's what we do here. Uh, first, you got some fun new info on death rates. I want to highlight. Um, for there was a New York Post article that I think I, I couldn't refine it. That always happens. I'm disorganized, and then I said, "Well, you know what? When we when when I do the podcast, just don't bring it up." And then it pops into my mind, and I bring it up. But they were talking about how in New York City. The death rates for people without pre-existing conditions, basically non-existent. Um, but this was from the Wall Street Journal, and I want to read you guys um, a paragraph. This was um, a dude from Stanford, and he was reporting about uh, the you know coronavirus before the world went to shit, and they told all of us that we need to be home and give all the money to the big banks. Uh, but in March article for Stat News, Stat News, man, you got to be a real loser to be reading Stat News. But anyways, in a March article for Stat News, Dr. I'm not even going to try this name, Ionitis, Ionitis, he sounds diseased. That's probably why people aren't listening to him. Ionitis argued that COVID-19 is far less deadly than modelers were assuming. He considered the experience of the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which by, doesn't that sound like a vacation cruise line for pedophiles? The Diamond Princess cruise ship? Or somewhere where, like, adults that are Disney fans go to meet kids. <laughs> Anyways. So the experience of the Diamond Princess cruise ship. By the way, and I bet that's also a shitty cruise ship. Like, I bet Carnival cruise ships are nicer than the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Uh, okay, so the experience of the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which was quarantined February 4th in Japan. Nine of 700 infected passengers and crew died. Based on the demographics of the ship's population, Dr. Ionitis estimated that the U.S. fatality rate could be as low as 0.025% to 0.625% and put the upper bound at 0.05% to 1% comparable to that of seasonal flu. 
If that is the true rate, he wrote, locking down the world would be um, with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences, maybe totally irrational. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat, frustrated and trying to avoid the cat. The elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. All right, so I'm jumping ahead in the article because um, this I want to highlight because uh, I said it at the outset. You know, I don't I don't fall sucker to these uh, these climate models. They tell me these climate models. I know. All right, there's some bullshit in here that you're telling me that the world's gonna end in a week from now. And Bernie, your, your grandkids and the grandkids and the, there won't be grandkids. They're, they're gonna be alive. It, it's gonna be like they're in an oven. Uh, you know, you know that these people are full of shit. And like, all right, I want someone. I want a model scientist explaining to me what you're doing with your model. So here, I want to read this paragraph for you. Because I think moving forward, we need to have some serious consideration for what exactly is going into these models. So modelers sometimes refuse to disclose their assumptions or data, so their errors go undetected. Los Angeles County predicted last week that 95.6% of its population would be infected by August if social distancing orders were relaxed. Confirmed cases were 0.17% of the population as of Thursday, but the basis for this protection is unclear. And lucky for me, I deleted the wrong paragraph. You know, I had I, I, I selected, I hand-selected... Out of a three-page article, I don't know there was three pages. Three pages if I copied and pasted into a doc. The one paragraph that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to share with you guys, my podcast listeners. And then guess what? I just read a paragraph that's totally not interesting. I got no commentary on that paragraph. And I had a joke that I wanted to tell you based on the paragraph that I thought was here and it's gone. I blame it. I blame it on the government. You know, not only are they keeping us in our houses, they're deleting random paragraphs out of my show notes. Um... No, the, the paragraph, which isn't here, but he was going to say that normally when a lot of times when these guys have their models and they tell you the conclusions of their models, they don't disclose the assumptions that went into the model. So you got a model and they go, hey, the climate's going to die in a year from now. And they go, all right, well, what are you projecting is going to be uh, the temperatures and the CO2 rates? And they go, oh, well, I, I can't give you that information, um, which to me you know, I sell marketing. It's almost like if I said, hey, I got a campaign, it's going to make you a million and get a zillion impressions. And they're like, well, where are you getting that from? And I'm like, well, you can't question my model. I have a model. And that's the conclusion. And then not only do people accept the conclusion, but the newspaper just goes, hey, that guy's got a million. He's got a model for how you can make a million dollars on a marketing campaign. Everyone's got to call Rob. He's got the million dollar model. It's unbelievable. He's got a model for a million dollars. And we can all understand that nobody invests that way ever. You would never just go, oh, he's got he's got a model. There, there's no uh, there's no performance return. He's never proved that his model does anything for everybody. He hasn't shown any of the inputs. He's got no track record of models making accurate predictions. The the, the insanity of it. Newspapers can just run with. I guess the worst case projections from any scientist who claims to have a model without any expert, like that should be the one person on CNN. They should have the modeling expert that just breaks down to us how they're putting and like, you know what, see if it gets past our bullshit detectors. I might have no information of 
uh, no understanding of science, and I might be a dumbass, but I feel like I got a decent bullshit detector that if a guy's trying to explain to me the assumptions that he used to tell me that, uh, you know, this thing's going to kill the entire planet or that global warming is going to happen tomorrow or that the Green New Deal, I have a model that says that the Green New Deal is a financially good decision for the United States of America. Like, how do you not, that, that's such salesmanship. So you don't have to tell us any of the parameters. All right. You guys get what I'm saying. And then the other thing that this uh, Stanford guy pointed out is that um, the risks of the of us going too aggressively on a lockup obviously include economic hardship, but even worse than that is people who aren't getting treatment for other problems. So people that got cancer, uh, people that might have seen a doctor for something and then prevented a worser illness, a lot of these people aren't going to see seek medical care. And it's going to be interesting to see if the death rates for lockdown from COVID-19 actually exceed or I might have said that backwards. I lost my train of thought, but you get what I was saying. Uh, it's the podcast where you guys fill in the blanks. It's where Rob has actually lost his mind because he doesn't have the necessary carbs to keep on going. He's been uh, deprived the amazing sandwiches from his friend Leo at Retro 2 Pizza. And so he has bad show notes and tells you just to fill in the blanks on the sentences and hope that you get what he was... Okay, you get it. <laughs> <laughs> now this one's already news old news by now but everyone was going crazy about uh trump telling people to uh you know just chug down some bleach and not only um will it get the infection out of your lungs but uh if you run out of booze i mean you need a you need to drink something bad for your health at night why not why not go to bleach that shit's cheap it, it basically already tastes like cum Stanhope had the best joke on that. Uh, you ever hear that Stanhope joke? I'm gonna ruin it, but you guys can go look it up. Uh, but his joke was, you know why, uh, you know why uh, cum tastes like bleach? So when a chick's done blowing you, she remembers to clean the kitchen. Not bad, not bad. But this is what's so great about Trump. I think Trump, it, it, it's like when he went to uh, when uh, when that hurricane was in uh, Puerto Rico, and then Trump went down there with paper towel rolls, like that was gonna help. He showed up like, guys, I brought the brownie. I got the good stuff, okay? One wipe has me so dry, okay? I, he did the same thing here. You know, there's scientists working on this, and Trump's sitting there like, I, I think I can come up with the solution, okay? The solution is solution. You got to put the solution into people's lungs. I don't know how you guys, it's so obvious. How did you not see it? It's literally the word solution, okay? But he... He legit, like, I think this guy, even with the COVID thing, is like, I, I've made him, America's never been so great, okay? Since we're, so many people are at home with their families. That's what I, I did that, okay? Nobody did that. Nobody got so many people staying home with their families, okay? America's great. Uh, but that, you know, that's what's fun. He's surrounded by doctors and he's like, I think I have a legitimate solution here. But then the other thing, and I'd mentioned this on part of the problem is, you know, the news reporters are basically like, Aren't you freaked out? People are going to hear your words and then reporters are going to, you know, twist it and create a dangerous situation. And it's like, well, you could just not twist my words. You know, I didn't say people at home should go inject shit into their lungs or spray Lysol. I said that maybe doctors should look into, is there a way of cleaning out the lungs? Is there a technology for light, uh, the UV light, whatever? Um, which, by the way, I saw a Zero Hedge article that that technology is being developed and then Twitter uh, like took down the post from that, banned that company. Uh, so, you know, fake news. 
Uh, and then, of course, Trump says coronavirus briefings are not worth his time and he's not going to do them anymore. And I'm almost surprised that same as Twitter, that Trump doesn't basically just go live on Twitter or start doing the Trump cast. There's really no reason for him to do these press conferences and let, you know, the reporters ask him these questions or twist his words. He should just do what he does with Twitter. How great would that be? Trump goes live every every day at two in the morning. That would definitely be better than those uh, Cuomo uh press conferences uh another thing and by the way this comes up in my conversation with uh mike ford coming up in a bit uh but i've always found state migration uh fascinating um in that i think if you were to look at a at least better model for government and i get that this is not a total anarcho-libertarian perfect framework uh but i think to some extent, the more localized government is, the more that hopefully we could force them to act like companies and actually have to serve people because at the end of the day, you can move to somewhere else. And what's interesting now is state migrations where as some states start to get their massive pension liabilities and these things come, you know, start coming due and either they can't offer services, they can't maintain the roads, they got to, you know, start boosting up taxes. Do some people go, hey, fuck living in this area and they start moving to other locations. And the first state that this would happen really bad to would be um, Illinois. That's the one state that is like the most pension liabilities and really probably the worst state finances of any state. And if you start unwinding the scheme of what happened there. So I think a big part of the picture is that it had some of the most favorable benefits for unions. And now what's interesting about that is that unions are able to make political donations and they also vote in blocks. So essentially you have unions bribe the Democratic leadership. And some of these guys, I think some of these senators have been around for a long time. You can literally point a finger at the individual who have done these deals, but they get massive support from the unions. They stay in government and they give out these unbelievable benefit packages to the unions. And now here's the thing about pensions. They are benefit now pay later schemes in that you have this job and you think, hey, it comes with great benefits, but it's not money that they're handing you today. It's supposed money that you're going to get in the future. And in reality, Anytime it's a benefit now, pay later scheme, that money's not going to exist in the future. If they have the money and they could afford to give it to you, it would be reflecting your current paycheck. If it comes to the government, be like, dude, I want my money now. I don't believe you're going to have it in the future. And guess what? They don't. Illinois will go bankrupt. They're going to have to default on their debt. They have they are the most Connecticut's next in line. I think New Jersey after that. There are a bunch of states that are going to be the first people to kind of go under because of reckless decisions and especially giving out favorable contracts to the unions and overspending, blah, blah, blah. You get what I'm saying here, but it would be interesting to see some states have to confront budget crisis and all of a sudden if we would see what I'm describing of people being like, all of a sudden, you know, it's like I can't fucking live in Connecticut that state's a disaster it's gone under and then all of a sudden maybe we force uh some states to be more fiscally conservative or stay like it's the same thing with healthcare when they made uh you know there's gonna be national let's like do this on a state level if you got good ideas for government we can test it like any other product or company in the world you can test it in one market see if the program works and then bring it to other places uh so there's something really interesting to me about if a state has a certain idea for government and it doesn't work, then good. Everyone realizes that it doesn't work and they have to suffer. It's the same as in like the market. You got to purge bad, bad actors. If the Fed comes in, same as bad banks, they bail out a single state for doing like shitty things. 
nobody learns their lesson for one, and then there's no consequences, and then there's no competition between states because we're rewarding bad actors. So I think Trump said, Trump and McConnell, this is coming up where it's like, we can't, it's not fair that we're just going to bail out these Democratic states because it's true. People will continue to think that these Democratic social policies of, hey, we can give away all this free shit. It's a working system. We need it. We need to have the consequences. We need to have a state go bankrupt. We need to have. I mean, it's terrible. This is terrible. The fact that people will be have been promised pensions by the government that won't exist, or they'll be promised that you worked your whole life at a government job, thinking that when you're age sixty-five, you're going to have health care, you're going to have to be provided for, and all of a sudden they confront the reality that they can't do it because they got to raise taxes to the point that people will leave that state, and there's no way for them to fund that. Guess what? I, I, that is that is horrible. Uh, we should figure out a way to like chip in and kind of make that situation maybe a little bit better. But we need to expose the fact that they're lying when they say that we can afford this shit. That when they give out the union contracts and they, they promise you that there's benefits down the road, it's a fucking Ponzi scheme. And if we don't expose it, people are just going to continue to vote for these liberals and these policies that are that expand money, that expand debt. And it's endless. It's like we need to have some consequence here for people to realize, hey, these things don't work. And now they're playing a game like that the, you know, the Republicans are just trying to punish these states. And obviously these states can't go bankrupt and that shouldn't be an option and exposing. Well, and part of it is that we don't want to expose the fact that government can default on its liabilities. We got to have this understanding that when America says it's going to pay its debts like that, that's that, that's America on its word. If a state can default on its debt, well, then I guess the whole country could also theoretically might default on its debt. And then the price of debt here might become more expensive. So we. I think you get what I'm saying. It is reckless for us to bail out the states that have been reckless because the more that we remove consequences from bad choices from the market, you know, we're incentivizing people to make bad choices. And really, we should go after some of the individuals. So here's another thing that's um, that's coming up along the same lines. There was just this Supreme Court case for $12 billion that was owed to insurance companies. And here's what's basically going on there. Obamacare passed, and now it's enough years later that some of the phoning account, phony accounting schemes of what they pretended we couldn't, couldn't perform, and their, you know, their bullshit projections of things that just were or you know that weren't true. The bill on some of that stuff is going to start to come due. So one of the things here was um, they miscalculated uh, what. You know what? I, I can't even give you the specifics. Broad picture, phony accounting, bad projections about the profits that would come in from the profitable insurance companies and being able to cover the losses of some of the other insurance. Basically, I think just it's as simple as not as many healthy people as they thought would enroll would enroll. And, you know, insurance companies were forced to cover for pre-existing conditions. Fictionally, they probably took losses. I don't know. It seems like the insurance company profits are incredible. Point is, they apparently owe them $12 billion. And guess what? Nobody budgeted for where this $12 billion is going to come from. Uh, and I think in the same way you have clawbacks, you know, like, or it doesn't really happen, but you have the concept of clawbacks for companies when a CEO got gigantic profits and then you find out that there was some sort of an accounting scheme and then down the road, you know, the company goes under or the shareholders take some giant loss, but that guy got his huge fucking bonuses. Um I wish there was somehow to like a way to charge it back to the person who made the bad decisions. Like I wish there was a way that we could somehow tell Obama, like, 
like, or, or even if we said in the newspaper, like, hey, man, Obama lied to you, not us. Like, this is an Obama problem. You know, if anyone should have to come back and fix this, it's Obama. I almost compare it to imagine you built a house and the contractor, your entire house, there was a support beam. And it's going to like, it's a steel support beam. It's going to support the whole house. And this guy, instead of a good steel support beam, um, he uses cardboard feathers and duct tapes. It's basically the set of the old Rob's newsroom. That was what we used, except there were no feathers, but it was basically cardboard and duct tape because I'm not a carpenter. I don't know how to do anything. So we use cardboard and duct tape. So he is, he makes a support beam in your house out of cardboard and duct tape. This thing miraculously, it holds together for five years. For five years, you're living in your house. You got no problems. Year five, whole fucking thing collapses because there's no support beam. It's cardboard and duct tape. The house collapses, right? So you call this guy up. Now, what would a person of integrity do? If a person of integrity built you a house, and let's say they built it with a good support beam and the thing fucking collapsed, he would go, oh my God, that's terrible. I'm a man of my word. I said I was going to give your family shelter. I'm not going to leave you in a collapsed hole, just just, just planks of wood in the ground where you're going to be like a mole person, show up, and there's just maybe maybe like you you try and organize the planks of wood so it's some sort of a roof over your head. I'm not going to leave you like this. But the, the, the politicians, it's the equivalent. Of, well, well, I'm retired now. I don't have that construction business anymore. I know. I know. I told you I was going to build you this incredible house, and that there was a good foundation and support beams. And I'm sorry that it collapsed on you, but you know, I'm I'm not in that job anymore. So this isn't on me to fix. But it's even more backwards than that because we don't point a finger at Obama and go, "Hey, Obama fucked this up." It's well, when Obama was in office, he was able to get us all health care. It's such a distortion between like, I guess, when we benefit from things and when we have to pay for them that to whatever extent you can make the even if the fucking thing collapses a year after you you leave, if you could have gotten benefits while you were there, people just remember, hey, it was a party while Obama was there. And while we're on the topic of perverse incentives because of the way that government operates, uh, this is from Business Insider, and isn't this fun, but because of the federal program uh, for unemployment and other benefits coming your way, there are a lot of people who are making more money not to work right now. Low-wage people are actually thinking, fuck, if only I could get fired from my job, I would be collecting more from unemployment from what this job pays me. And isn't that great? Like, if there's one thing that should happen in this environment is you should realize, man, I really got to get my shit together. The fact that I've got a job where some other person gets to decide that, you know, I can just be furloughed or the fact that I, I, I got such a, uh, uh, I, I got a job that I can't just pick up my laptop and work for me and do it from home. Like, there are ways to to experience, like my grandfather, I got to tell you, my grandfather, one of the hardest working people I've ever met, guy saved money his whole life, was one of the most disciplined people I've ever met. And the reason for that is he grew up, his parents lost his, um, his parents lost their business during the Great Depression and they had to go move in with his grandparents and he just kind of saw, fuck, not having money is really, really bad. I got another friend who, of my group of friends, is the most hardworking and that was because... Um, the rest of us had a better parental structure, and I think we had an idea of what we... He just kind of realized, oh, there's no fallback plan here. And he outworked all of us, and now he's more successful than any of us. And it was because he was scared out of his wits of, oh, shit, if I don't go make something of myself, there's no support structure. I'm not unlike me. Like I said, I can come home at any point in time and be a fat alcoholic. Not that my parents are wealthy, but there's food in the fridge, and, you know, there's a bed I can sleep on, and usually booze in the house, so... 
I, you know, how much risk do I have on my plate? I'm not looking. I wasn't getting. All right. You guys get the point. But the, I, I think people can go through tragic moments of realizing, fuck, I really need to get my shit together, hit financial bottom and maybe take responsibility and turn things around. But when all of a sudden you find out, oh, man, like I not only do I not have a job, I'm making more money now. I, I hope I get fired down the road. I hope there's another COVID-19. This is the first time I was able to pay off my debts. You understand? It's like just the backwards incentives of the way government's stepping in. And then you got to look at what's going on, like in the bigger picture with the financial markets, who's getting bailed out, everything that's going on with money. Crazy fucking times that we live in. All right. Moving forward, I, I think uh, I'm about a week away or two weeks away from uh, finishing this writing project that I'm working on. We're going to be back to weekly. Uh, really want to explore more of the fundamentals of what's going on in money, the euro dollar, and um, the absolute shenanigans of the amount of money that's been given over to Wall Street and the credit swaps that are going on with other countries. Uh, best website I've seen right now, if you guys are interested in it, is um, Wall Street on Parade. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm just interested in is with all the money being printed, uh, how much risk is there for hyperinflation? What's the timetable of what that might happen? And then a while back, I was saying I was getting a little bit concerned that we might have supply line issues in food. Someone hit me up on Twitter and actually said, dude, we're so good at farming. Excuse me. We're not going to have a, a food issue. Now I'm seeing, but maybe it's just because they want us all to be uh, like super afraid again. But Tyson was saying, you know, that, uh, no, was it Purdue or Tyson? Which one's the big, uh, food, whatever. I don't know. Point is there's a little bit more in newspapers now of supply line issues when it comes specifically, um, to meat. So if you guys have any interesting sources on, um, upcoming supply line issues when it comes to food or hyperinflation, I'm really interested in those topics. Best place to reach me is robsnewsroom at gmail.com. I do have a bunch of you guys hitting me up on uh, like uh, Facebook and Twitter Messenger, which I'm fairly responsive and I enjoy chatting with you all. But when it comes to uh, like source materials or articles, if you message me in those places, I basically will see it and then forget about it. So definitely shoot it into my email. Um, oh, and last thing before we get into this conversation with my good friend Mike Ford of the Film Foria podcast. Um, I put out the last episode of Quarantined, which was the epic tale of uh, me being quarantined from my car and uh, how I finally was able to get out of that dire situation. Uh, so check it out. I think I might have started a new YouTube page, Robbie the Fire, trying to make that kind of consistent. Also, probably going to get a website up soon so people can just go there or not, you know, but it's another place where you can ignore my content. Uh, so that's it for now. Here's my conversation with Mike Ford. Why would you live in New York City if the sole purposes of being there are that job and then doing stand-up comedy, and if both those things are cut off for the foreseeable future, it's like, couldn't you create or do whatever you're going to do from any location remotely and not have to pay twelve fifty a month for rent or more to not go outside? Um, I can actually... You're, you're not going to be able... I can create more easily outside of New York City because uh, there's more space to, you know, just get around and be yourself and, like, you know, stay in a good mood and you have more resources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I don't know. I've been, a lot of my friends have already, they're looking at other states and trying to figure out, you know, places. You know, honestly, if you're looking around on the East Coast and you go, 
oh, like there's a lot going on for creativity in North Carolina and Atlanta. You look at studio apartments, they cost seven fifty, eight hundred bucks a month. And they're they're gorgeous. So it's like there is something to be considered in that train of thought, just depending on the fact that nobody knows what we're doing yet. They don't know if a second wave will be in the winter, fall, January next year. They don't know if it'll be worse. If we reopen too soon now, does it become much worse six months from now? Like, nobody knows anything. Well, uh, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I know, Ford. And uh, I think you're going to take the negative on this. I think we got played. You look at these New York City death numbers, they're not that high. You look at the numbers for people without pre-existing conditions, it's almost unexistent. I get that getting sick sucks, and I get that this one, if you actually showed symptoms, could be pretty harsh. But honestly, if you had pre-existing conditions, you should have been on lockdown, and you should start getting your health together. And if you didn't, the rest of us should just be going about our lives. Hang on, but what do you mean by the death numbers aren't that high? There's 55,000 across the U.S., right? Yeah, what's, I don't know. You got to look at death charts. What's 55,000 for, you know, two months of death in the U.S.? I I don't think that's 55,000 out of 350 million. How many people die on the the highway on a daily basis? How many, you know what I mean? Like, look at 55,000 in in seven, seven and a half weeks, right? So you have to think four and a half weeks of that were under extreme lockdown scenarios where over 80% of people across the U.S. were in complete lockdown. How many people just typically die in a week in the U.S.? I'm just saying, like, typical random week I, in I the think, U.S., how many people die? I think, look at the past 10 years, the average death annually for the flu over the past decade are 35,000 or less. So this killed 55,000 people under an extreme lockdown for 65% of that time in seven and a half weeks. So just multiply that to equal a year, and you'd go, oh, okay, it's a lot worse. The thing is, this is different because you herd immunity doesn't work with it without sacrificing like two to three million people. So, so maybe I mean, yeah, what, I, I would, what you're saying is if we can just expose the immigrants first, we can solve the immigration problem and get the herd immunity. Was that what you're trying to say, Ford? That's not what I'm saying at all, but that's what you're saying. I'm saying, so we'll count it as a direct quote from you that immigrants should have it first, and then that'll get rid of those two to three million people. That was your words. No, I, I thought that's what you were getting at, and I just wanted to make sure I was understanding you correctly because I was never, I would never put forward an idea that radical. I'm not that creative, and that's why I'm pretty sure it came from you directly, and uh, you're the one who should be uh, quoted for it. Well, I mean, I think if I was, if I was saying like the opposite of that, and then you went, well, what's the opposite of that? That it should go to immigrants, and I went, yeah, that's what you're saying, and then you said, yeah, that is what I said. So I think it's quoted from you. We'll just leave it there. But you know, what I will say. But you can at least you can at least agree that herd immunity would help in this situation. No, it wouldn't because it doesn't function the way normal herd immunity would. Like coronaviruses don't work that way. I actually watched a great video on this. I don't mean to be statistically informative here, but three million people would die if we tried the herd immunity effect of just letting everyone out. You just like to be Um, a source of panic. Well, a huge, a huge part of that is, like, you can't put that burden on, like, a healthcare system that doesn't work. So, you know, that's why so many people are going to die as well. There's a lot to figure out in this, but, I mean, for us, it's like, 
like I can write anywhere. I can work on the podcast anywhere. It just doesn't make sense to go to the city to live in lockdown and still pay. Well, 80% of the people don't have jobs. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I really wonder if New York city, um, housing, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if the housing market in New York city for rental somewhat crashes because if this happens a second time, like if this ends soon, you might have people who go, all right, I'm renewing. That was a one-off. But if this comes back around next year, November, I, I would just estimate like 40% of people currently living in New York city are going to be like, fucking, I'm, I'm, I'm finding something else out. This sucks. Do you think that would be true for any like population dense city? Because like, think about this. You're supposed to operate everything across the board. Like in Texas, they're doing like movie theaters and gyms and, and they're like, Oh, well, supermarkets, everything is at 25% capacity and you have to wear a mask at all times, like restaurants, everything. So it's like, what's 25% capacity of New York city. It's like, if you let 25% of just the population of Manhattan outside, you have like two and a half million people out. You know what I mean? Like, how do you ever social distance in New York city? That's just my question of like, how how are we going to reopen anytime soon before there's a vaccine? Because, like, you can't just have seven and a half million people sitting inside. Yeah. I, but it just doesn't. The other thing that's interesting is I don't know that rural America um, necessarily currently has the infrastructure to handle a lot of New York maybe coming to those towns and cities. But I guess that supply and demand, those hospitals over time would become equipped if all of a sudden there was demand for it. But I don't know. I mean, small towns are just going to get wiped out. If they had, like, a huge run of it, the hospital systems upstate can't handle anything. Um, I, I think it's really hard for people to even follow social distancing protocols. I took – there's a great photo I have that is outside a Starbucks in the city from, uh, like, an apartment window. And it's a bunch of people outside Starbucks with all their face masks down just drinking coffee and talking to each other from like two feet away, but it's like a group of 15 people. And this, it was taken like yesterday by a friend of mine. And I was like, you know what, you know what I had today? I was, uh, I was, I was walking. It was a beautiful day. I I leave my house. I go for little, uh, little strolls. I get some fresh air and some dude on a bike just comes right next to me. And it's like, there's so much street here. What are you doing? Like it's, it's almost, I would have been annoyed with him. Even if, even if this thing wasn't going on, I would have been annoyed with him just from a personal space perspective of dude, there's so much road here. Why are you infringing on my road? Yeah. And I think that's going to happen over and over. Like some people are going to totally disregard it. Other people are going to be super, uh, irritating about it or kind of like sensitive to it. So I don't know, man. I think what's hilarious is the fact that just you're putting all this responsibility on individuals, and we're one of the most individually irresponsible societies of all time. So that means like hilarious. Like think of think of not even the dumbest person you know, but like a moderately dumb person. So like you that really can't. Yeah, think of me trying to handle like day-to-day things and just failing miserably yeah, over I, and over. Like just ruining like a business simple. every day, showing yeah. up, having a perfectly good business and just running simple it to the ground. Like trying to remember a password, like that type of stuff. And you expect me to save you from a virus that's already killed 55,000 people. Like it's not going to happen. You know, I'm glad 
we're not going to see each other in person for a long time, uh, just because it, it would just be Ford, bad. The, you know what? Ford, there are friends we that I miss. At the same time. Ford, there are friends that I miss, and you're not one of them. Um, you, you know, you. you bring failed business energy to the table. You bring uh, quarantine hysteria. So you know, there's. <laughs> Hysteria. That's my new special. <laughs> I just walk around people that weren't panicked and make them panic and then leave. Uh, I, I gotta tell you, like, being sick, though, I have had this feeling that I've never felt like myself since being sick. You know what that, you know what that's called? Um, just th- there's a name for it. Do you, you want to know what it is? Sure. It's called depression. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah. I wasn't sure. That, that's, I, that's all I've that is. I've never experienced that before with how good things were going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm curious, like, have you felt any, like, you were sick for a couple weeks. I think maybe it was this thing, maybe it wasn't, you don't know. So the, like, only, did you- the, only, the only thing I have that makes me think that I had it when I was sick. There were two, there were two symptoms. You and I were both kind of talking a whole bunch while we were both not feeling well. The first was before I got sick at all, I was like wildly, wildly tired, like oddly tired. And like, I remember taking a nap. And then the thing that scared me the most was because you and I were talking about it. I was like, if this is, if this is a coronavirus, it's the weakest cold I've ever had. Cause I was going out every day. I was exercise. Like I was, I, I had a ton of, I had a ton of energy, But then I had one night where I like drank not a lot of alcohol and I had one of the worst hangovers of my entire life. Like it was weird how bad of a headache I had. And I thought like, oh, maybe I, maybe I get bad hangovers now. And then the next day I had like a light headache. Um, and that like, let me know, oh no, no, no. I guess because of this cold thing, I'm getting bad headaches. That's the, and then like, I think the following day I also had like a slight, slight headache. So that was the one thing that made me think like, oh, this is a little bit different than your typical cold. Other than that, the symptoms were less than your normal cold. Like I didn't even have that stuff. You have a nose. Um, also I was, when I was full fledged sick, I was in my apartment and my roommate never came down with a single symptom and I was being a dick. I didn't even tell him I wasn't feeling well. So like the the, the evidence goes either way on whether or not, you know, I was a crony fold, but you, you certainly had cronies. And if anyone gave it to me, it was you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Or it was like another friend of mine got it at the exact same time as us. And I will tell you this, the first symptom for both of us was fatigue, strange, bizarre fatigue, like tired, like walk two feet and just sleep for 12 hours. Like it was so strange, but I had symptoms like stuffy nose, cough, uh, runny nose, chest congestion, fever. And like, I just downed flu and cold medicine for two weeks. And it took me like two weeks to recover. And I was, I wanted to ask you, uh, you don't feel any, any symptom like that has just lingered. No. I've had, it feels like my lungs got destroyed during this thing because it's been almost no, dude. five or six weeks now. That's, uh, that's residual shirt fumes, buddy. <laughs> Remember that failing business yeah. you had? <laughs> all those, all of that still in your lungs. <laughs> but it could be that. So it's either or. I don't know if it's coronavirus or fumes from the factories. Uh, but yeah, I've had this thing where I've been working out and it's like just taxed my uh, my cardio so much. I'm trying to get back on track. But I'm thinking, you know, honestly, 
I'm looking at North Carolina. I'm looking at Atlanta. Um, Atlanta. Looking different places. Atlanta sounds a little bit cooler. Atlanta. The problem with Atlanta is, I mean, well, actually, I don't know how. Atlanta's pretty big. I think it's got some real rural parts, but Atlanta seems to me like it's got a lot of creative stuff going on. I mean, you got full film productions going on there. Yeah, same in same in North Carolina. You have, you know, in Atlanta, it's like, you know, I think it's spread out enough where, you know, those are places like you definitely need a car. You can probably get a studio apartment for like eight hundred a month. And to me, it's like, what's the downside of going somewhere where you can at least drive around and possibly meet up with people there because the restrictions are looser to go film something or work on something together. Uh, even in Texas, like Austin or Dallas or something like that, as opposed to New York City where it's like, yeah, you guys can't be in a group of 10 people together all coming from different places and before you do anything, you gotta have your temperature taken. Or like, I just, I see, Robbie, I see no way how how people are able to handle this until there's a vaccine, like how they're able to make it work. I know everyone's trying. Like they're saying like, we need to go out, but you got to admit, like a protest after four weeks indoors to get your hair cut or go to a CrossFit gym and then act like you've just come back from two years in Vietnam is crazy. It's like insane how dramatic people are. Like they just want to go to brunch because they miss mimosas. And it's like, you know, there are greater hardships in the world than having to stay home and watch Netflix for four weeks. Yeah, but that's the... To, to be fair, that's kind of the uh, the douche characterization of uh, some people who are like, hey, I want to go about my life. But the scarier side to this, just in terms of kind of evaluating the situation at large, is one, all the people with failing businesses, which you've experienced. So it's not like you don't understand what it's like to have a failing business that you know you've ruined. So that's, that's one side of it. You're lucky because you don't have kids to support or a mortgage or rent or any of those things. Uh, so you were able to just put your hands up and walk away from the failing business. (laughs) But some of these other people, they don't quite have that luxury. And, uh, no, but the other element is the, the debt that we're taking on as a country and the fact that the fed stepping in, bailing out large, large corporations and even sending people stimulus checks and pretending like it's something that we can all afford, um, it, I think it's disingenuous. I think it's going to end up really costing the country a lot down the road. And um, yeah. it, I, I like, here's the problem. It's kind of like we live in this fictional model where all this money's being spent and it, it, like it, even take the healthcare debate. And now in my opinion, I, I, I firmly believe if there was just a total free market for healthcare, um, poor people would be provided for and all of us would have better care than in the current system. That, that's my belief. But if yes. you even, if you even try and have that conversation with someone with like the current, you know, well, I have healthcare, like they're in this fictional land where we can actually afford that healthcare. And we can't, by the way, th- there was just that thing this past week, the, the government screwed, um, where they basically, the Supreme court said they have to pay $12 billion out to the insurance companies because basically what they yeah. told them was, uh, in order to make Obamacare financially solvent, and then we can move on from this quickly because it, I, 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 I we were going to talk about uh, movies. You know what? I, I'm gonna, I think I was gonna. I spoke about this like earlier on in the episodes. So there's no reason to get into the Obamacare stuff. You were just trying to preach more about fear and alarm and why everyone should stay inside, and I cut you off. So go ahead. So I was just gonna say, everyone panic, we're all gonna die. And that's pretty much the summary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, looking at that, though, it's like people have businesses, all that legitimate stuff, 
yeah, I understand that concern. It's not like you and I are coming from huge pace, like uh, places of privilege where it's like uh, life is cushy and golden. Like eventually, everything would you know break down for us as well. But it's like the you know the irony of that is like I worked a failing business for a year of like no pandemics, no bad health, nothing good going on. Then everything in my life got really good for about thirty days, and uh, <laughs> the whole world collapsed. So, all of planet Earth shut down. Well, um, so, Ford, this is your fault. It was very clear before this that the universe wanted you to be a miserable failure, and you climbed your way out of that and brought this pandemic on top of us. So, really, this is your moment to apologize to the world. I want to give you the floor. I take full responsibility, uh, but all I have to say is everyone else was doing well before when I was eating shit. So, this is what you get. This is what you get unless the world brings me uh, good things again, uh, and maybe I'll lift the curse. But There you go. Yes. If you... I do say, I think people in the city, considering moving to another place or people in like densely populated areas, I think it might be the right move, because guess what? I don't know if you saw this. This will be the last thing we talk about. But you know how they track you with your cell phone to make sure people are are staying home? That shit's not, that shit is scary. I don't know to what they extent. Are so crazy. Yeah, that means they could always do it, and they just now tapped into it easily. And it wasn't like it wasn't like ten percent of the U.S. population was like moving more than a mile per day, and now in the past week it's gone up to thirty eight percent. So it just shows that people have just gone. I'm done with quarantine, and fuck the people that are going to die. And that's that. And then they've just, you know, gone out and done whatever they're going to do. So I think, like, it's crazy scary that, yeah, they can just track the percentage of people moving a certain distance by their phone, which means they always have a lock on everybody. But By the way, can I just tell you, in regards to that technology, I feel like government is probably... um, Listen, I don't think government's too concerned with Rob Bernstein or Mike Ford. I don't think the CIA has a file on Rob Bernstein or Mike Ford. But I think when it comes to tracking big data, they have everything. They have the trends. They've got a full understanding of basically what everyone's doing. The technology to track all of our phones and know where we were, they probably had all the applications worked out for how they were even using that or having like a general idea. Or maybe like maybe the panic scenario was just, hey, our enough people from certain fringe groups in politics like is there a upward trend of too many of these people actually gathering in person or whatever whatever it is then their algorithm of hey these are little risks and these are the things we have to track i bet that stuff always existed and then it's like when you get something on this level all of a sudden they admit like they didn't sit down and go oh we can develop a software and i think we could probably have ways of tracking who's talking to this person what like that existed beforehand and now they're just almost testing the market of whether or not we're willing to tolerate giving over that kind of control to the government because we're afraid of this contagion. Like they didn't look at this contagion and go, Oh, I bet we could reuse our technology and repurpose it. Like they always were able to do that. They probably always are doing it. It's just a function of whether or not they can start executing on the fact that they know where we all are and who we've mingled with. Yes. 100%. 100%. I agree. I think it's uh, it's just like them lifting the veil a little. 
to be like, oh yeah, we're we're doing this so we can make sure people are following the guidelines for uh, you know sheltering at home. And it's like, oh, you guys have just always been doing that, and now you're just showing us so you can we can have like data so we can see the numbers that and that you know um, that we'd be breaking the rules. But it's like wild to think anything less was happening when you have a conversation at home uh, about you know, like fabric softener and then you open your phone and there's an ad for that fabric softener or whatever. So, uh, I picked a random thing where I'll be having a conversation at home about like fabric softener as if that's what I have conversations about with people. But, you know, if you do talk about fabric softener and you open your phone and there's the ad on Instagram for fabric softener, it's like, yeah, of course, of course, like there's, you know, all that technology and detail of monitoring people, seeing what they look at online, how they shop, what their impulses are. Um, yeah, of course, that's all there. Anyway, you want to talk movies? Yeah, so the reason why I had Mike Ford on is because if you like all this positive energy, you want to know how you can incorporate the minds and thoughts of an individual who recently had a failing business and then brought the coronavirus upon all of us. Then we look to none other than Mike Ford, who um, you just started a podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the podcast and the kind of information that you're boring people with? Absolutely. I also uh, will tell people that if you think my energy is negative, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then, then just, you know, really deep dive into the persona that is Rob Burke. Um, <laughs> It's the walking implementation of the face palm emoji. <laughs> it's uh, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, I think. By the way, I'll Ford, I will say, you yeah. can you, you do a pretty good impression of me. Yeah, it's it's either someone going like, why? It's like someone being like, why would this happen to me? Why am I here right now? I don't I don't understand anything. And then it's like, that's a person who literally is just sitting at a desk at an office full of people, uh, just talking out loud in the middle of the afternoon, but saying those things. That's, that's you calm. And then you just randomly could be like filling a cup with water and we'll just be like, shit, fuck, no, God. And, and that is, that is you realizing what life is. <laughs> and and not being able to keep those thoughts inside. Um, it's great. My energy is good. I'm I have a successful business that I'm not even really involved with anymore. And it's it's all it's all good. Um, the podcast, by the way, I'll take the opportunity to promote is the at Filmphoria podcast uh, is how you can follow it on Instagram and then filmphoriapodcast.com is the website and the podcast is just called Filmphoria obviously and uh, it's just me and my buddy who's an actor uh, we talk movies and break that stuff down but we talk with people who are editors, cinematographers uh, writers, directors and uh, we have the interview episodes on their own where you can just kind of listen to people talk who are working in the industry um, and kind of what their path was like to get there and then we just talk movies and stuff like that and have random chat like this and break down what we liked about the movie, uh, you know, how things were made, um, that type of stuff. It's been really fun, to be honest. We're only 11 episodes in, and 
it's it's going really well. So if you're in the movies, uh, check out the podcast. So that's, that's my plug. Ford, you know, I just filmed a whole series quarantine for my car. So I'm a bit of a filmmaker myself. Uh, yes, you and are. I was thinking, you know, as we all kind of, I would say we all do this. There's kind of the entertainment that's a little bit, um, maybe artsy or is even mind expanding. We can call it like eating a salad. And then you got your movies that you watch, which are great. You love them, but they're fucking junk food. Like I would kind of say, you can argue with me on this. I love, I love the Marvel movies. I've seen them all, but like, you know, that's, it's kind of junk food. It's very passive. It's loud. It's explosions. It's a lot of fun versus, I don't think I, like I watched all of it, but I I watched uh, a good chunk of Casablanca once with my grandfather and I would say, if you're going to sit through a movie like that, it's because I've read some books on screenwriting and everyone says it's a classic. So I'm kind of trying to understand what about this is such a classic or I've never really watched any of the uh, Hitchcock. I haven't watched any of the Hitchcock movies, but if I if I've watched like random shit on YouTube, it's also to kind of like get a feel for his. Holy shit. That's a big ass fucking raccoon in the street, dude. I like raccoons. Do you like yeah. raccoons, Ford? Have you ever seen a raccoon in the city? Um, not that often, but I have, oh, it's a fucking family of raccoons. Oh, man, and the, and these are big-ass raccoons. I hope they attack your car like Jurassic Park. Oh, man. Dude, can I tell you, I once had an embarrassing experience. It was in the middle of the day, and uh, my friend, uh, it was on the, the Sabbath, and I was like, yeah, I was like a kid. I want to say I was like nine or ten, and my mom asked me to take out the garbage. And so I take out the garbage in the middle of the day. And I open up the the garbage can, and a raccoon that was the size of me jumped over my head, claws out, fangs out, <laughs> right over my head and ran away. And I ran in crying like a little bitch, right in front of my best friend, who's such a good best friend, he never mentioned that incident to anybody. I would have brought it up every day. That guy, he was a pal, you know, he didn't call me out for why I cried like a little bit. There aren't too many times I can think of when I was a kid that like something just made me cry like a little bitch. But that was one of the, can I tell you another good one when I cried like a little bitch, Mike Ford? Yes, indeed. All right. I once came back from camp one summer. I'm going to say maybe I was like 12 years old, something like that. And uh, my parents in, in the house that we lived in, uh, at one point they had turned the garage into a master bedroom. So... I come back from camp and, uh, you know, my mom, she goes, Hey, do you mind going to my bedroom and getting something for me? And like in a cartoon, I go to their bedroom. I open up the door. I fall five feet and I land my knee onto a cinder block because no one told me they were doing construction in that room and they forgot to lock the door. (laughs) It was like a cartoon. I just fell down and I, that's another time I can remember just crying like a little bitch. You know, both those times seem reasonable for a child to cry. Well, Just, you know, I'll be the expense of therapy, but it's probably okay for a child to cry in those moments. I, well, that's because you're a guy who's okay with failure, and so... <laughs> I've experienced enough of it where I understand that it's... It's just part of life. All right, so um, Ford, as we sit in our homes, are there any uh, classic movies that you can recommend uh, and give us some of the insight into, like, you know, what what are some of the Ford classics that you think are important that are just like, hey, these are some classic movies that you need to see. They got some valuable life lessons. Like, what do you got for us? Uh, I got a few things. I got episode five of my podcast, Film Foria, Movies to Watch While at Home. Uh, 
that is full of recommendations and breakdowns of both types of movies you're talking about, classics and then just the popcorn, you know, kind of like action flicks, kind of mindless stuff you can watch. So uh, that's something I can recommend. But I will say, when you brought up the Marvel movies, I was like, but this is something I always think about because I do think they're well done and well acted and, and put together, and they're definitely like popcorn action flicks, but I've not been able to sleep during this quarantine. Like oddly, my time I fall asleep is like three thirty, four in the morning every night. And to kind of deal with that, I would start putting Marvel movies on at 1am and then just falling asleep while watching them. And they are rewatchable to like no end. You know why you it's because it, it's because, you uh, don't have to pay attention. Well, it's not just that. One of the things that make them so good is that all of the, all of the, all of the dialogue, all of the plot points, everything kind of unfolds over action. There's not a lot of just kind of sitting around talking. It's either peppered with jokes, like they're really good at kind of working jokes into it, or there's like the plot points are like I like I was I watched the Avengers one and there's the one where like they go and try and like confront Thanos and whatever this fucking I'm not going to get to the point to me is there's not a lot of just like sitting around talking the other movie before that that was kind of had the similar pacing was that second of the really good Batmans with the Joker there's very few scenes in that movie where there isn't like some real action taking place so there's like a different you know there's a different pace and speed to it that you're very rarely sitting down watching something that's, you know, just like a typical scene. Yeah. And I, I think that's why these movies for quarantine specifically too, is like, you're looking for a lot of ways to pass time during the day and they're two and a half, three hours long. So those are good movies to watch in that spectrum. But it's like, if you wanted to watch similar movies that had more, artistic merit or kind of filmmaking merit in the general sense of like people's opinions and went into like sci-fi you could watch Blade Runner which is two hours long the original with Harrison Ford uh, that Ridley Scott directed or you could watch Blade Runner 2049 that Dennis Villeneuve directed with Ryan Gosling but you could watch those movies and they're both great but they have I never liked those movies and you know those those are really great films to watch uh, on both sides of just being kind of junk food and being like real cinema. Um, but you could also watch Rear Window. It's a story about a guy that breaks his leg in the summer and he's stuck inside and all he can do is watch his neighbors uh, through the window and he, he thinks he observes a murder take place and that becomes, you know, that's a classic Hitchcock film. So we covered that film on my podcast. We covered uh, Citizen Kane, which is widely thought to be the greatest movie ever made. Um so that Orson Welles film, those would be like the Brady kind of like go right. back and, and watch cinema films. But today we did, uh, I just got done recording an episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and kind of Quentin Tarantino movies. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could watch really stupid kind of junk food movies. I think that's good for quarantine because it shuts the brain off and it's just kind of like you can watch it. And then I think it's good to to really, if you're into film, dive into like movies that you've always wanted to see. Jesus Christ, we have so much time right now. Uh, my day is done by like 12 p.m. I gotta watch. You wake up at the, the, 10. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm actually pretty disciplined because uh, 
I I don't know. I, I get my writing done in the morning, so I like to wake up. You know, at I, I like I'm pretty sharp about waking up at eight a.m., which is not that early in the scheme of waking up early. And some days I'm not actually up till nine, but I'm pretty good about getting into my computer. I like to be at my computer sitting there at nine and like working by then. That, that's just kind of my ritual, and I find that that helps me stay positive and creative. Um. The big movies that I would like to watch that I haven't yet is I always love Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, and there's a ton of his film catalog that I've never watched, including both 2001: A Space Odyssey and the that famous the the comedy movie the um, How I Fell in Love with the Bomb. Uh, Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, Doctor Strangelove. I haven't seen either of those movies. Yeah, Dr. Strange looks great. Um, I think you'd love that film in particular. Um, and then uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is amazing. Uh, that's a beautiful movie, too. We just got done watching The Shining and uh, Dr. Sleep, like the sequel to it, and then doing an episode on that. And uh, The Shining, if you haven't seen it, is is amazing. Um, yeah, watching all Kubrick stuff. Like, watch um, Full Metal Jacket. Like, even his... Full Metal Jacket. His, his movie. Full Metal Jacket is is good, but when I saw I came across a Clockwork Orange in high school. I want to say I was fourteen or fifteen, and mm-hmm. I couldn't believe like I couldn't believe how fucked up what what I was watching was. Like I was so gripped by I couldn't believe how fucked up it was. And then also there was like the, just the interesting kind of um, life questions in there about you know free choice and if you could. Uh, take away people's free choice so that they made better decisions. Would that be something that you should do? Uh, but the one thing I picked up on a little bit, and I'm not a, you're you're more the film guy than I than I am. That guy's movie scoring of just like the music he puts to film is incredible. And then obviously just like his camera movements and like not just colors, but just how immersive that universe is and kind of the different way he films, which maybe you could elaborate on for us is also just visually pretty incredible. Um, I think the, I don't know what the actual term is for it. I think it's called single point focus. Um, so it's, you know, you line all those frames up from Kubrick movies and it's like all the characters are in the center of the screen, like a single point of focus from kind of a third person perspective. Um, where it's perfectly centered. Obviously, he's shooting anamorphic, so you're getting a, a different aspect ratio than you'd see most films in today, so that kind of makes it stand out. And then he's shooting films, for one, so that's going to give it a different aesthetic. Um, he's working with crew people who are, you know, very rigidly being forced to do things exactly to perfection as if he sees them. And then he also is having custom lenses and lens mounts built for the cameras that he's using, which are destroyed after the making of the film, so nobody can duplicate it. Oh, that's cool. That's why his movies have such a rare aesthetic to them, but also, honestly, he was a still photographer for magazines in the, I think, 50s, uh, before he really got his break in filmmaking, uh, maybe the 40s, and he uh, has a perfect eye for it. Like, if you pause... The Shining at any point and you pause Full Metal Jacket, it's just a bunch of perfected still frames through the whole movie. Um, so, yeah, his movies can can appear very flawless as as where every single 
shot and image is, is, is thought out. It, it seems like it has a place there. Whereas like the modern day movies, you might see that for like 60% and then the other 40, it's just kind of shot that way because that's the way they took the shot. There's no real intention behind it. But like even someone like Tarantino, we were talking about today, how his attention to detail and kind of the vision he wants to create. It's like every single shot is meticulously thought out and planned out and he works with people who really understand what he wants and not every film is going to be that I just watched this movie have you ever seen like Alien or Aliens the first one or the sequel yeah so firstly I've seen all the Alien movies and even though they're not all that good Alien 2 was I remember this the only time this ever happened to me I was watching that I, I had when I was in high school um, I somehow suckered my grandmother into buying me this like incredible DVD player with 5.1 surround sound. And while my TV, what was that? I said nice. My TV was not that good, but this surround sound system was incredible. And I was in a small room and I had like, you know, it, it was kind of my room. It was a couch, the, you know, small Panasonic TV in front of me. And then just this incredible five point. I've yet to have like a, a movie set up like this since I was a kid. Age 13 to, you know, every Saturday night in high school, I would just rent whatever, like these great DVDs and I would watch it in there. Unbelievable setup. Uh, and I remember watching Alien 2. That's the really great one. And there was one scene where, like, the alien, like, um, you know, it's got the latchy thing, basically, when it's, like, the small thing, and it pops up against the glass. And I was so frightened because the, the sound comes in be- behind you. I actually had jumped up onto my feet. Like, I-, I needed a moment to realize I'm now standing. But Alien 2, unbelievable movie. All the other aliens I had to watch just because Alien 2 was so damn good. Um, but Alien 2 is the one that's, like, I think if I remember the, the titles correctly... That was the one with the, the, the little kid that was the only one that had survived. That's Alien 2, right? Yes. So that's the one with Newt is the name yeah, of yeah, the yeah. little girl in that movie. But Aliens is the name of that movie. And then Alien is the first one. And you have a debate of like which one is, is better, like which one is the superior movie. And most of the time when people say, oh, sequels are never as good as the original, people go, well, Alien is, is better than Alien. And... I'm on the I'm on the opposite side of that party. I think Alien is the better movie, but I think Alien is great. You have to look at like Alien was directed by Ridley Scott and created like that, and then James Cameron directed Alien. So you have two really brilliant directors, especially in that genre, because Ridley Scott directed Blade Runner. So uh, you have really great filmmakers making those movies, and yeah, the sequels are are not as good after that. I think the first two are definitely worth watching but that's like an interesting movie for me because I can recommend if people want to watch a terrible movie that's out right now that you would think is like the junk food movie there's a movie called Underwater with Kristen Stewart and it's basically like people being trapped underwater at kind of a drilling station and they need to make their way from one station to another when there's like a system failure and they're at the bottom of the ocean, and there are these creatures in the ocean. So it's a lot like Alien. It's like an isolated movie. She has a shaved head, just like in uh, Alien 3, which David Fincher directed, but is not not really, uh, it's not that well thought of uh, as far as the film goes. But like, watching Kristen Stewart just not be able to lead a movie as far as being the lead of the cast. Oh, it's hilarious. Watching this movie... 
the movie's so expensive, it looks like production wise, but it's so boring. You know, there's a comedian in it that he uh, he always he plays the character that's always just sarcastic. It's always just one-liners of sarcasm, and he does it the same in every film. He's in Deadpool, and he plays the bartender. Oh, uh, what's his name? He, he's great. Uh, T.J. Miller. Yes. So he's in this, and he's doing nothing different than that usual T.J. Miller thing, and he's the only energy in the whole movie. Uh, where it's like he's just delivering one-liners and probably improving most of the stuff, but then everything else is so boring. Like the action, there's no suspense. Like you don't care who lives or dies, and it's edited exactly to ninety minutes. And I always find the movies that are ninety minutes clean cut, like edited to ninety minutes. That's probably not the movie the director wanted to make. It's probably not. It's, it's canned literally to be like an hour and a half, ninety minute there's the max attention span for the audience for this type of thing and just get it done. But, uh, if you watch that and you know, alien and you've seen those movies, you'll be like, Oh, here's a clear cut example of like really good movies. And this underwater movie, which is dog shit. All right. So I think you once said in passing to me that there are really only seven great directors. Um, and some of the names you threw out, I wasn't even aware of like Francis Cord Coppola or something like that. So let's, uh, let's hear Ford's list of the great directors. And maybe if you can give us the, like one or two lines, you know, like just so we can have a little bit of education, like the one or two lines of what makes like each one of these guys stand out as being a great director. Uh, I mean, Coppola is an amazing director because, I mean, he's done the Godfather trilogy, uh, he's done Apocalypse Now, and I think his lore in filmmaking is based on the documentary his wife did when they were filming Apocalypse Now called uh, Heart of Darkness. And if you haven't seen that documentary, it's incredible, but it really shows a guy like losing his mind to try and make a movie. He remortgaged his house, he, he put all the property they owned uh, up as collateral to take out a loan. He personally financed that film and he thought about killing himself while making the movie because he was certain it was going to fail and they were never going to finish it. Which one, Apocalypse um, Now or Godfather? Apocalypse Now. Oh. And uh, he had he had so much uh, invested in that film and he had Brando coming in and not learning any lines and only improving. and Brando wouldn't film any scenes with Dennis Hopper in the room so they had to film the two of them separately and he's paying Brando a million dollars a day um, and then Martin Sheen had three heart attacks during the making of that movie <laughs> he was smoking like four packs of cigarettes a day so like it's, it's insane film lore so I think you kind of if you come up in the time period where it's like you know, even George Lucas, before he made Star Wars, he made American Graffiti, and people were like, oh, this is a real, like, respectable filmmaker. And then creating Star Wars, like, no one ever saw anything like that before in cinema. So if you talk, like, the big four, it's always, uh, at least American filmmakers were talking, it's always been Coppola, Spielberg, Scorsese, and George Lucas just gets kind of thrown in there because it's like he was buddies with all of them, he worked on the films of all of them. It's like Lucas Arts obviously helps with things like Indiana Jones when Spielberg is making those films. So I think those four were always like the, the four horsemen, like the old guard kind of filmmakers. But nowadays you could be like, 
Tarantino can definitely be in there as as a, a unique and and really vibrant voice in American cinema, um, obviously. And uh, then you could put a ton of like Dennis Villeneuve, who's done Blade Runner twenty forty nine, Arrival, um, is doing the new Dune remake. He's he's a person that that fits in there as like a really talented director. So I don't think. I think there's just like four or five that they always consider kind of like the godfathers of American cinema, and it's going to be those guys. Um, I would. I want to throw. I want to interject for one second. So, France, I yeah. didn't realize uh, Francis Court, The Godfather 1 and 2, both amazing. Apocalypse Now was another one of those movies that while I was watching it, it's like, I can't believe I'm watching something this fucked up. And then I almost didn't appreciate that movie that much until. Um, that was one of those movies like I thought about a day later and I'm piecing it together in my mind and really enjoying it. What was almost mm-hmm. what's almost weird about that movie is it just it's a very it's like not a very traditional plot. It's basically a dude just going down the river and fucked up shit keeps happening and I get that there's a linear story and then he ends up I don't want to ruin the ending if, you know, not that it should be a spoiler, but like it you know what I mean? It's not it's not your very traditional plot of uh plot flow which almost like I would say the Big Lebowski was the same way the first time I watched it I didn't get it because I was young but the whole time I'm like watching it just trying to figure out like what the fuck is going on in this movie and then you kind of realize that it doesn't have a plot and you can well it does but then you can rewatch it and really appreciate the conversations because you're not trying to watch it like you know figuring out exactly what the plot line is um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a crazy fucking take here, and I know it's gonna ex- uh, 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 upset you. Um, Jurassic okay. Park, incredible movie. Other than that, Phenomenal. unbelievable movie. Um, other than that, I mean, a lot of Spielberg movies are fun, and I get that some of them are like incredible classics. I don't know that I've ever actually watched Jaws start to finish. I don't think I've ever seen ET start to finish. I don't think I've ever seen Close Encounters start to finish. What are his other really All big right, ones? So- you're not, then I don't know what opinion you're going to throw out, but I was going to say, yeah, like those are all phenomenal movies. I guess not enough. There's, I guess there's something to his style that doesn't make me like think tomorrow, hey, I really want to watch Jaws start to finish. Watch Jaws start to finish, watch E.T. start to finish, and watch Close Encounters is amazing, but you also have to look at, you know, I'm trying to think. Jaws was made in 1975. Um, so he's, he's making these films again. And just like Alien, I think that movie is made in uh, 79. It's like these guys are making films that, that, that broke kind of where films were at the time. And, and it was new American cinema. Um, it's just like Scorsese. So it's like that's why they're so relevant that time period because America didn't really have... You know, it's like, I guess what you're calling the, after the the French New Wave kind of films and stuff like that in the 60s where it was like artistic cinema, it's like American cinema really came about in the, the late 60s and 70s and transitioned into something totally different. And those are kind of like the old guard of that time period, which is why they're so revered. I mean, if you look, you know, and ask me, I'm going to say one of the greatest American filmmakers is Orson Welles. And a lot of people mistakenly think he's foreign or, you know, not an American filmmaker. What's his biggest um, films? Citizen Kane. So Citizen Kane I never saw film, Citizen Kane. Uh, it's his, it's his, 
biggest film, but you got to realize this is a this is a a guy who went to Hollywood, writes this movie Citizen Kane, directs it, stars in it, um, playing a guy that's in his early to mid sixties and he's twenty five years old at the time from a small town in the Midwest. Uh, I'm gonna say know, does this Citizen Kane in Chinatown are probably the two movies that are like, if you're reading film writing books, come up the most that I've just never seen. Yeah, so, I mean, they reference those movies. I mean, you have, obviously, Chinatown is a Roman Polanski film, and it's like, Polanski is, uh, you know, did Rosemary's Baby, and is, is the one who is, you know, living in France, exiled, because he can't work in the United States because he'd be charged with sexual assault uh, of a minor. So it's like, you know, it's all, that's all kind of like the old movie like all that stuff is the old guard i'd say present day you have like phenomenal young directors working um i would throw spike lee in that top tier of, of film directors like do the right thing is definitely a movie that at the time in 1989 could have won i never saw it shows, uh, shows what i know ford what's that shows what i know i really haven't seen a lot of the classic films all right ford i'm getting add here give me your top five movies of all time Oh, it's impossible. Um, the Shining is going to be uh, in the top ten. Okay. Uh, the Shining Apocalypse Now is going to be up there. Full Metal Jacket is going to be up there for me. Um, I would say Alien's going to be in there, honestly. is It's uh, just a really great sci-fi film that kind of broke ground. Uh, I would say... Amoris Paros is a movie that's always, it's like the first foreign film I ever discovered, so uh, it's a Spanish movie that's 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 great. Um, Pulp Fiction or some Tarantino movie, Reservoir Dogs, uh, that, that would be in the top ten. And then uh, I would say Gremlins has to find a way in the top ten because it's just, it's just a movie I love. Man, uh, so many great. of these I haven't seen. It's incredible. I need some more film education. Have you seen Gremlins at least? No, I've never, movie. I've never seen Gremlins, dude. You gotta be kidding! I've never seen <laughs> Gremlins. Mean, we grew up at the same, we grew up at the same time. No, you're way older than me. You're way older than I am, Ford, and you look it too. Have you seen, have you seen E.T. Gremlins, uh, Goonies? Goonies, I've seen Goonies, 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 okay. Goonies, and Sandlot like go hand in hand together on Channel Nine. You know. Those things were just always yeah. on the UPN. The, well, no, it was the Channel Eleven had the Sunday afternoon movie. I can't even tell you how many of those I watched. Willow was on all the time, which I never liked. All right, Ford, I'm going to throw out two movies that I love, and I'm curious if you've seen them. One of the biggest life changing movies for me was the original Papillon. You ever see that movie? No. <laughs> all right, I I recommend it. It's with uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, Steve McQueen, and uh, I. Okay. It really I'm sure I'm sure it's good. It's um I the remake was okay, but the remake uh I think with Charlie Hoonan and Rami Amalek was okay, but the mm-hmm. the original the original movie was so good. It's the only time I ever did this. I then went and read the book and uh to me it just really showcased the power of persistence and I really love that movie. Uh Do you know what's so interesting did that interject, but I uh I seen the the remake, so I haven't seen the original, so I know the plot of the movie, but yeah, I'll have to check out the original. So, with having seen the remake, you're gonna, the original's far superior, 
having seen the remake, it's gonna, and knowing the plot, it is gonna kind of weaken the experience, and some of the movie is gonna feel a little bit too long, uh, because in the first movie, they really showcase a little bit more of just how harrowing and tortured of an experience it was to the point where, you, you know, you almost got to commit to watching a long movie, but you, you kind of, in in the way that it goes on a little bit uncomfortably too long, especially when they put him into solitary confinement and you really watch a guy lose his shit, it's kind of a full experience. So I almost recommend if you're going to watch that movie, watch it in one sitting. Um, because if you don't break it up, I, I think, you know, even retrospectively, when you look back in your memory, sometimes I process movies more like after the fact, it's going to have more of an impact. And then the other one, and I'm not sure why I relate so well with these prison movies, but cool. And Luke might be one of my all time favorite. I might be my number one favorite movie. I love that. That one. Yeah. Cool. And Luke would find a way into my top 10. Also. So I would say that's a great choice. I think Paul Newman is maybe one of my favorite actors, uh, and all his stuff is 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 really good. He's kind of effortlessly good. So yeah, I think Cole Smith is one of the best movies. Agreed. He just uh, that that movie's an incredible uh, piece on on faith and fitting in. That's what that's kind of what I relate to in Cool and Luke. And then it's also just entertaining beginning to end. Oh yeah. For sure. I, I think that's spot on. I, I relate to like the same things in that movie, but I, I think it's just really, really well done. All right. Before I let you go, Mr. Ford, anything else? Uh, oh, we can let people know you're actually the mastermind behind um, stupiddoucheware.com, better known as uh, Brooklyn Brooklyn Love. Is that the is that the website? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm the principal investor, so I want to make sure I get this plug right. So shoplovebrooklyn.com uh, It's been a weird time to not be able to update anything there because because uh, they're too depressed to work. But uh, everything should work. You can order everything. We just have not been able to do photo shoots or any product stuff for the clothing. But I am working on new stuff for that actually right now. And uh, see if that you can support if you like to wear clothes and stuff. And then. Uh, at Film for Podcast on Instagram. We could use followers and we could use ratings and subscribers on Apple Podcasts. But if you're gonna but film for you. If you're gonna support one of the two things, I haven't gotten back my investment money in Shop Love Brooklyn. So support that one first. And uh, I thought I was gonna model the clothing. I thought that was part of the deal with me being the investor. You know, we can't uh, there's no photo shoot right now. I was thanks to the pandemic. I wanted to I launched it by I made a failing business successful right before the pandemic and then decided I could do it for myself and launch a successful business and then a pandemic hit. Well, so that's don't worry. That were taken you just stole some investment money from friends, so it's nothing to feel bad about. Um, but oh, no. Well, I, never, I never felt bad knowing it was coming from you. So I, I was totally fine with that aspect of it. I was basically like, listen, there's been a pandemic. There's no way we can reimburse investors right now. 
we're just gonna have to ride this one out like every other small business well, in America. I'm I'm okay with it. I just want to get those modeling photos so I can start boosting my modeling resume. That was really why I put in the money was just to uh, get some good photos of me in the t-shirt, showing off kind of a casual but still good-looking vibe, not too shredded. You know, not like intimidating good-looking, but good-looking enough to model so that I could start my career. So, you know, as long as you better make good on that part when this is over. You know, no, we could just do some of these quarantine photo shoots that people are doing where they're just taking screenshots while FaceTiming people. It'll, we'll just put those on the website. Totally work out. Um, but seriously, if anyone listening to your podcast, I, I like your podcast a lot. If anyone enjoys movies and listening to podcasts, uh, Filmphoria is the name of the show and at Filmphoria Podcast on Instagram. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun, man. We're still figuring it out. Like I said, we're only 11 episodes in. But uh, yeah, it's cool to talk movies. I probably did a better job talking about movies on your podcast probably than I do on that one. But uh, it's... Uh, it's all good. It's fun. All right. What was the last thing? Last episode that you did, what movie did you talk about? Uh, I just recorded it right before this uh, podcast with you. So we did uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie. Oh, yeah. You, you mentioned that. Yeah. I, I actually, I like that movie a lot. All right. Ford, thank you for joining us. Let me... Uh, let me